Hello everyone and welcome to the 17th episode of Changing Reels for Changing Reels. I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And Changing Reels is partnered with Modern Superior, so make sure you go there to check out their other podcasts, including the AV Club Recommended. See you next Wednesday. With Changing Reels, Courtney and I like to focus on overlooked or underappreciated movies with a focus on diversity in front of and behind the camera. Now, at the start of each episode, we like to take a moment to talk about two short films picked by Courtney and myself before we jump into our feature film discussion, which today will be closing out our Korean Cinema Month with Courtney's pick, The Wailing. So before we jump into our shorts and wail away, how's it hanging, Courtney? Not too bad. Just getting over a little bit of a cold, and it's just been pretty busy. We have hot dogs starting up here in Toronto in about another week or so, so I've been slowly scouring their uh, selection of documentaries and watching a few in advance and just getting prepared for nonfiction goodness. Ooh, spectacular. It's the watch some of them in advance I'm interested in. Anything of note that perhaps I or our listeners could check out? There was one that I actually saw called Last Men in Aleppo. It's a documentary about the white helmets in Syria, volunteer firefighters, ambulance rescue workers who go around whenever there's a bomb or any type of destruction, firefight, what have you, trying to save as many lives as they can. And it follows two men in particular and just how it, it takes a toll on them mentally. And you're basically living in an area, in an environment where you're seeing death and destruction on a daily basis and just the impact that it has on them. And it's a fascinating, fascinating film. Uh, I hope it gets a lot of play after Hot Dogs. Um, and I know that's Hot Dogs is showing, like, well, I think, close to 200 different documentaries, but I hope that's one that people will, will check out. Yowza, that is one in a gigantic fishbowl. So uh, because I was a little unclear, I, I heard the Aleppo part. Um, how were the syllables in the first part of that name arranged? Oh, sorry. Last Men in Aleppo. Last Men in Aleppo. Cool. I'll have to give that a look-see then, my man. And obviously, if anything else comes up hot dogs-wise, I hope that you share it with us. Probably the next episode, I'll have a whole slew to go through. And actually, for our listeners, depending on when this goes up, but on Thursday, which is April... 19th, 20th? Days are starting to blur. Uh, <laughs> but whenever this goes live, I will be on uh, Radio Regent, which you can find at RadioRegent.com on a show called Frameline. I mean, we'll put a link in the show notes, which is hosted by Barbara Golagoski. It's a wonderful film show that happens weekly, every Thursday. And what Barbara has done is she has collected a rotating panel of guests. And I was on a few weeks back talking about the Human Rights Film Festival up here, and I'll also be on this week, talking about hot dogs, and we'll be discussing a few of the hotly anticipated titles and what our thoughts are on those and which ones we want to see. So if our listeners want to check that out as well, you can find it out. And also just follow her show as well. It's a really great program. Well, uh, as you were chit-chatting, I was tip-typing away so I can make sure to add it to my list of podcasts to listen to because I have no shortage of things I need to listen to or experience while I'm keeping myself busy with my relaunched Can't Stop the Movies agenda. So I will look forward to listening to that, sir. And we're going to go ahead and transition on to our short films for the week. We got a little bit of actual accidental synergy this week because I didn't watch your pick until I had already picked mine. 
I'm glad that we took things in a kind of lighter direction, because we have been dealing with some overbearing darkness, and the film we're going to be discussing later is no exception. So why don't you tell folks a bit about your short? Well, that's definitely the reason why I, I picked this one. My short film is simply called Mom, and it was directed by Wook Sang Chang. And it's a very simple tale of the lifespan of a particular woman. And it, it starts off with her as a baby in a small village to the teen years, if you will, to her getting married and to having a child of her own. And then, of course, the child grows up, leaves the nest, and it falls a woman as she basically returns back to her original childhood home just to revisit and reflect on her life. Again, it's a very simple tale, but one of the reasons I chose it, besides the wonderful animation, was that we have been focusing on a lot of dark themes. And when I was originally thinking of a film to discuss for the feature for Korean cinema, I was originally thinking of doing a drama or possibly a comedy, just showing the different facets. And then I kind of got struck by the film that we'll be discussing later. So I wanted something as a short that was lighter. This is not a short film that I would necessarily play in front of The Wailing if I was programming a festival or a screen of my own, but I think it's just a wonderful piece of animation that I hope more people check out. Boy, that would set a really jarring tonal shift in place if Mom played before the Wailing. I actually kind of want to see if I could wrangle some folks for like a mini living room film festival just to attempt that and see what the results are. But with Mom, dude, I am kind of ticked that you chose this because I have no way of watching this on a big screen theater. Like, I have a decently sized TV that I can use to watch these short films, and Mom is totally deserving of a full landscape. Some big surface that you could watch it on. Because the director, um, Wook Sung Chang, he does an amazing job carving out these little spheres of activity in this gigantic space of beauty. And I love the fact that his figures, the mom as she is born and grows up, they don't get lost in the bustle of day-to-day life. Like, she doesn't fade into the background. Anytime it jumps back, to landscape or to that lovely shot of her opening her window against a nondescript building or that gorgeous shot of her walking along the dirt path between the two telephone poles. The mother seems to be part of ongoing life. Like, overall, you know, our individual lives may not seem to be that much different to any casual observer. But I like that Cheng doesn't let her get lost in that. You know, she is the mother to this daughter. She had her loved ones. She had her own routine. And while he still acknowledges one story out of many... It still kept that individual touch for her. Like, I I loved that the end, which it seems like she dies. At least that was the gist that I was getting at the very end of it. But I loved that personalized touch of her going back to pluck what seemed to be like berries from the tree with a stick. He managed to make something that was both extremely universal and very specific and didn't lose sight of either facets of that. And I like that. 
idea of life continuing, especially when she gets back to her place of birth. The house is dilapidated, but you still see the fruits growing on the tree. Life is still existing. And one of the things I loved about this film is the rendering of all the environments. I felt like you could literally reach out and touch the bricks at the bus stop, the roof of the house. You know, even when she was in her apartment in the big city, the way how they did the wood, like the, the, the beautiful mixture of miniatures with the 3D animation was just fantastic. Yeah, I was super duper impressed that I guess this this was a university film. We've watched a couple of animated projects before, either done, you know, independently or as part of a university scale, and they tend to be a bit more experimental, which I suppose we'll get to with my pick in a moment. I was just really impressed with the formal beauty of everything. Usually these animated shorts or these animated features from young directors, they're bustling with that energy. They've got their toys, it's the train set, time to build your dream line and let it go chug chug chugging along. It speaks to Chang's maturity and precision as an artist that he allows all of these images time to breathe. There's no rushing from one scene to the next because life isn't full of that many dramatic starts and stops. Sometimes it is, but typically it isn't. But I love that he gave every scene enough time so that you could luxuriate in that texture that you're talking about, getting to that point where it feels like the environments are just comforting you. That was one of the things I absolutely loved about the ending, too, was that beautiful, if we were going with a traditional live-action set, it was almost like a crane shot up and around the tree before returning to the mother as a baby again, which also signals life continuation and kind of the rebirth. Watching that shot... I was getting this sense that she was taking one last look at her surroundings and remembering how it all started before she said goodbye. That was so beautiful, and I think it's something that I very much needed after watching Silence and then The Wailing, which we'll be getting to a bit later. So, yeah, I love this pick, dude. Well, let's jump to your pick, which is a little more frantic, but at the same time, I think there's still some similar themes we can touch on. Do you want to talk about why you picked Jersey? Oh, absolutely. I also picked an animated movie for similar reasons, because we had gone very intense, surreal, and depressing with all of our other Korean picks so far. And I know that is a a trademark of a lot of Korean cinema. I think Roger Ebert, in his initial review for Old Boy, had mentioned that of the Korean movies he'd seen, there were only one or two that didn't have strong sadomasochistic undertones. I wanted to pick something a little less painful, but at the same time, something that excited me in a way. So I stumbled upon uh, Mirror in Mind by uh, Sung Hee Kim. For the experimental filmmaker in me, once I saw that the intro looked like it was painted on and then drawn on to cardboard boxes, introducing us to this woman, I was like, oh man, this this is going to be good. And then the quote-unquote proper animation, the more fluid animation started, and boy, I was not wrong. I, I think that what this does share with Mom is a healthy 
grasp of body positivity. And mom, it very much embraces womanhood and motherhood without doing it in a way that feels weirdly sexist or like putting mothers up on a pedestal and saying all hail their maternal glory. And Mirror in Mind does something similar with maybe autobiographical, maybe not. I actually didn't even look up a photo of the director. Uh, I loved that Kim allows the... I guess our central figure, protagonist in the sense that that seems to be who we're viewing this world in, an opportunity to walk in defiance of all of these norms that are thrown on her. And I loved that it was unashamed to present her in her folds, in her naked body, and take pride in that instead of having to hide it away or ultimately conform to these ideals. So while it's bizarre, it was affirming to me in that sense. Well, one of the things I, I liked about this film was, as you mentioned, the, the body positivity, but also it's got a healthy dose of humor. You know, when I was originally thinking Korean cinema, I know that it's commonly known for a lot of the dark brooding revenge type films, but there's also a wealth of healthy relationship dramas and, and comedies. And I like that at least this touches on the comedic aspect, that great sense of humor that can be found in Korean cinema. And I also liked the social commentary that it was making, not just how women are viewed in comparison to other women, but I, one of my favorite parts was when, I guess, she comes across the businessman. He, he puts on the suit on her and then he basically is standing up on her shoulders. And that whole image of the successful businessmen are basically doing it off the shoulders and the backs of strong women who are there. I thought that was a wonderful image. And even though he tries to put the cigarette butt out in her face and trying to, I guess, show his dominance, you get the sense that he is nothing compared to what she is and her inner spirit. Well, I love that the image of the man kind of putting the cigar out in her face ties into how plucky and happy she is walking on this tightrope, which we could probably work a little Janelle Monet in here and have that positivity rolling on. Even as she walks on the tightrope with her face on fire, the way that she's animated, she never loses any of her strut. She keeps her shoulders confident and her hips swaying to and fro. It doesn't matter if they snuff her out because I love that her solution to that was essentially to jump off of the tightrope and go skydiving. And what happens when she's done skydiving? She is reborn back into herself, this beautiful bit of herself that she loves. And, and that's why the framing device is so important to me, because it comes from this seemingly mundane place. The cardboard that has the images kind of painted on it, before it starts, she's got like this tube that she's using to literally see inside herself. And I love that what she sees inside herself doesn't ignore the problems that she faces. It sees her for her. You know, she sees the trim woman in the dress, and then she, the dress is forced onto her. So she just takes it off and goes back to strutting. So I loved how self-affirming this was, just how confident it was that it was literally an artist looking inside themselves, and this is what spilled out. I kept wondering like, how long it took to create this because it looks like it's a, a mixture of like hand-drawn animation, but then you've also got the weird, I guess, circular cardboard tube 
that you're looking into, there's a lot of layers to the images that you're seeing on screen. And then once you get to that whole kaleidoscope of beauty, that's the best way I could put yeah. it, that, that's, that's inside her. I was thinking, man, this must have taken a long time to construct, but it, yet it, it flies by so seamlessly. I think the whole thing is, what, maybe two minutes yeah, in total? But it conveys so much and gives such a great positive message in that short span of time. So I'm going to do the director a proper and actually look up what Sung Hee Kim has done otherwise, because there was an awful lot of creativity put into both this short and your short, Mom, that I have to know more about because the techniques are fantastic. So after the jump here, we are going to have a drastic tonal shift, and we'll be back with our last Korean movie of the month, 2016's The Wailing. Welcome back to Changing Reels, everyone. After that jump, we are prepared to tackle the light, heartwarming family comedy, The Wailing. Part of what I just said may be a lie and an attempt to distance myself from the nearly two and a half hours of unremitting horror and intensity that is The Wailing. For a bit of a plot description here, our primary character and pretty much the man who everything happens to is Jong-gu. A good man overall, a uh, change of pace from Memories of Murder last week, who is a cop in a small South Korean village that is beset upon by evil forces outside and inside their community with many demonic activities that may or may not be attributed to a mysterious old Japanese man or a mysterious young Korean woman, or maybe it's the priest, or maybe it's a combination of all three. All I know is that this made me extremely disturbed from start to finish. So, Courtney, thank you for picking something that ruined my evening so thoroughly. So why don't you get into your motives for picking this that don't have to do with freaking the crap out of me? Oh, well, you know, that's always the intention, to uh, to disturb <laughs> you and disrupt your evening. Um, the reason why I chose this one is I had heard about this film last year. It was, it was one of those films that people kept just mentioning, like, have you seen The Wailing? Have you seen The Wailing? And I saw a few lists say, like, one of the best films from 2016 that you haven't seen. So when it finally appeared on Netflix, I said, well, you know what? I'm going to sit down and give it a spin. And I was not anticipating the the levels of darkness that we, we get in this film. And I'm not a, a huge horror person, but by time this one ended, I think I'd sent you an email, like, about 20 minutes later. I was like, all right, we got to talk about this film because <laughs> there is so much going on. And I, I enjoy it and i still don't know if i grasp everything because there's a lot that's left to interpretation which i think is also one of the reasons i like it in a weird roundabout way uh but when you say that jong gu is a a good man i would argue that this film proves that he isn't necessarily as as he seems i don't know about that his hand is forced essentially in a couple of moments and while as you mentioned there are some questions outside what we see in the narrative as to who is actually playing the town and what the demon may or may not want none of that is clear um, save for one terrifying transformation towards the end of the movie. jong Gu is really concerned about his family. Overall, he's a decent, if not entirely competent cop. 
And considering the things that he finds and what he witnesses with these pseudo-zombies, which were a terrifying touch because they're infected in a way that we're not used to. They're basically covered in boils and are possessed to the point where they inflict their violence on others before the spirit of evil rips them apart from within. And another totally heartwarming, not at all tense scene. By that point when Jong-Gu's actions, because he does inflict some violence where maybe it wasn't deserved, pretty shortly after we find out that he wasn't too far off on the mark. Now granted that has the benefit of hindsight, but with the narrative as it unfolds, his let's put it this way, his instincts were a lot more sound as to what was going on as opposed to the two detectives that anchored memories of murder. I will give you that, but as we film progresses and as this, how shall we call it, illness, disease hits closer to home, uh, he makes a lot of rash decisions that essentially seals his own fate, or at least the fate of his family. Because when he goes to visit the Japanese man who everyone in town seems to think is mysterious simply for the fact that he's an outsider majority of the film you don't really get much in terms of him doing anything he's just kind of around people have visions of him doing certain things but you're never quite sure like all these folklore tales that is it you know is it just because he's an outsider or is this stuff that's actually happening but when jongu loses it pretty early on he's convinced that this is the guy i need to worry about and goes to his house roughs up his dog everything he jumps off the brink a lot sooner than he should have. And even when he has a chance to redeem himself, he, he again, makes the wrong decision, as I guess any concerned and impatient parent would. But those are the, the things that tend to seal his fate. But one of the things I, I loved about this film is you have the quasi-zombie aspect. There is the, I guess, murder mystery aspect to it. But then there's a really interesting conversation about faith, and religion in the various forms. And you have three people or three entities, if you will, that may have particular powers and how they all interact with each other, I thought was very captivating. The last 30 minutes of this film are, are a head scratcher. It's captivating. You're at the edge of your seat, but then at the end of it, you're still, you, you walk away thinking, okay, let me try and piece this puzzle together. We're not given all the pieces, but we're given just enough to form our own interpretation of it. See, the faith aspect of it is actually what kept the last 30 minutes or so from being a head-scratcher. Because I think what seals Jungu's fate and the fate of his poor family, and I, I definitely want to talk about performance of the daughter in a bit because holy cow, but it's because Jungu doesn't have faith in anything. Like, the one through line I was getting with each of the three potentially supernatural characters, I think it was a... Um, some kind of Shinto priest or a Buddhist priest or something. I, I apologize, I did completely miss the religion there. But a non-Christian Eastern denominational shaman, Il Guang, as played by uh, Huang Zhongmin, he comes closest to providing some kind of tactile, immediate comfort to Jong-Gu, but it's because of Jong-Gu's totally natural instinct to protect his daughter that the ritual fails, essentially, and it 
brings about even more evil into the world. And then Jong-gu is faced with the prospect of putting his faith in the mysterious Korean woman, Moo Mi-young, who's played by uh, Chun Woo-hee. She tells him essentially everything will be okay so long as you do not go home and break this spell. He is a protective parent, so you can imagine how well that goes. But even at the very beginning, with the Japanese stranger, the Japanese stranger is also explaining that he is trying to protect everyone from the mysterious woman. So what you have is this kind of like warring triad of different faiths, vaguely defined, but enough spiritual oomph behind them that we can see that there is something else going on here. And the way that the movie wrapped up with the mysterious Japanese stranger assuming the form of a demon and relishing in taking photographs of this Catholic priest who was also trying to help but woefully unequipped to deal with any of this. That, I think, is where I'll agree with you that Jung-gu is flawed. I think he's flawed for good reason, because a lot of what he does and the mistakes that he makes is trying to immediately defend his family and acting on the information that he has while being asked to take an awful lot on faith. But since he doesn't have faith in any of this and screws up everywhere he tries to take some kind of direct action, the way the whaling is set up is that because of his impatience and because of the violence that he inflicts, he ends up in a way inviting the evil further into his life instead of embracing some path to keep his family out of it. I could see that his actions, or I guess his lack of faith, make him more susceptible to the shaman's charismatic ways. Like The shaman was the one character through all of this who, the minute he appeared, I was like, I don't trust this guy. The Japanese man, there wasn't uh, enough originally to... Well, I guess, well, there was a few questionable scenes, but there wasn't enough for me to believe that everything the town's saying about this mysterious stranger is true, and the mysterious Korean woman, there was enough intrigue there, that I was like, okay, you know she's gonna play a role at, at some point, but the way how the family takes heed to everything the shaman says, and does what they can to get the money, and the shaman's always almost like the in, in the back of John Gu's mind when, whenever the shaman says, that's the one thing he, he trusts for sure, for real, and it's like, well, you know there's nothing about this guy outside of the big garb and the big pageantry that would make you think that this guy knows what he's doing. So I, I found that he was a really interesting character. And part of me feels that the Japanese man who I guess gets possessed at some point wouldn't have gone as far as he got in terms of the darkness had Jong-gu not tried to interfere with him and basically try to off him. Like I think the act on the hill and what happens afterwards with the vehicle is what allows this demon, evil spirit, what have you, to utilize the Japanese man for his own or her own will. And I think that's where the whaling is good at providing multiple avenues of interpretation here, because I don't disagree with anything that you said, with the Japanese man especially, and the the priest Il Guang, he rides this weird tightrope between being a snake oil huckster and someone who clearly knows what he's doing to a point. He's like one of those folks that we like to describe as knowing just enough to be dangerous. And I gotta wonder if this community might have had some of its the ill effects, or at least Jung-Gu's family wouldn't have suffered like they did. Had the 
shaman not been involved at all because he is like some bizarre combination of Merlin and Chris Angel. Like, bit of smoke and mirrors, but also a bit of muscle behind it. That also explains why Ilguang has that creepy reaction when Mu Mi Young confronts him late in the movie and he just vomits all of this blood, but he's still allowed to live. The fact that he lives, along with the violence and jung being rebuffed at every turn, it made me think of the wailing more as those really old fairy tales. Not the Disneyfied versions where the little mermaid gets her legs and marries the man and has her voice. More the version where the little mermaid kills herself and turns into foam. Those brutal renditions, like the Polish fairy tales and especially are great at this, but the brutal renditions that teach a very valuable lesson. But I'm struggling as to what the lesson of the wailing is or even if there really is one, it seems to basically just be saying, stuff's going to happen, and you got to find some way to roll with it, unless some crazy shaman comes in and says he can make your problems go away. <laughs> maybe, maybe? Possibly, but I think it's more... If, I don't know. If, if you were to... I don't know if it really is intended to have a, or, or to give a message, but if it, if it was, I would say that you need to, I don't know, have faith and not be so quick to act. Because if you think about it, a lot of the problems happen with people just reacting and not having the faith that things will work out. You could almost look at this film as like a, a game of religious chess, where the villagers are the pawns. Depending on their movements, they will either succeed if they, I guess if they believe and they follow the right path, or they will perish in horrible, horrible ways. But again, I don't know if the director is necessarily trying to give a message. I think you just constructed a great horror film that gives you a lot of food for thought. My attempt to ascribe some kind of semi-concrete meaning to everything shows that maybe I wasn't paying as close attention to the wailing as I should have, but at the same time, Myself, much like Jung-gu, I like to try and find some kind of discrete meaning in things, even if it comes to matters of faith. Having to let some part of yourself go in order to embrace that. And especially when it comes to horror, it's one of those genres that works so deliberately in intense signifiers and meaning that my mind immediately jumps to, oh man, what does it all mean? And while that's a little easier in something like the Babadook, here it just seems like I really need to go with the primal Polish fairy tale mindset and say, bad stuff's gonna happen. Maybe sometimes you should just find a way to roll with it instead of freaking out, like I already said, but now I'm rolling into my own conclusion, which I guess is also kind of like Jong-gu. So. Yeah, and I mean, his, the, the mysterious woman tells him, like I guess the sin was for him the accusing of others and taking a life as a result. And he tries to uh, rebuttal and say, this guy made my daughter sick first. It's like, well, did you know it was actually him that did it? Do you have proof? You know, like you, you are jumping to conclusions. So that's where I think it's a lot of prejudging fellow man, if you will, and not having faith in a higher power if you're wanting to look into 
some type of meaning, but I'm sure, all this, mean? I'm sure our listeners will have a whole completely different interpretation of this film. I want to touch on it. I know that you had mentioned on was the performances and the performance in this film are flat out fantastic. You know, you've got the lead who is a loyal family man, a bit of a bumbling fool on the job as a cop, but he has that moment when things start to ramp up and he starts to get swayed by the dark side, the expression in his face and the mix of fear, but also anger works so well. The shaman, I love the imagery of the, you said with the, the, the snake oil salesman, because yeah, that, that's what he, he's so smarmy, so smarmy, but he plays it so well. And the daughter was just flat out fantastic, especially when things are happening to her body and you're slowly seeing the change from the innocent, precocious, questioned everything to cursing at her father, saying, I'm going to kill everyone in this area. So you just, you know, you're all on notice. What I really love about Hyojin, the actress who plays her, is uh, Kim uh, Hwang Hee. And it kind of goes back to my somewhat fruitless attempts to get meaning from all this. Because her performance reminded me a lot of Linda Blair's from The Exorcist. But The Exorcist was dealing with a lot of puberty images like being unable to control her body seeing adults as sexual figures literally spewing forth fluids that they that she didn't realize she could spew forth before here uh, hyojin while she does traffic in some of those you know especially when she's cursing out her father she also kind of has good reason to curse out her father and kim Hwan hee she goes full throat into all of this. There were moments where I was hoping that someone was just off camera, ready to rush her a lozenge or two, so that she could film whatever scene she had to for the next day, or some kind of maybe delightful honey tea with a twist of lemon, just something to give her voice a reason to relax. The way that she contorts her body, it, ugh, it, it bothered me. Her contortions were a clear parallel to what was happening to the adults in the community when their bodies are literally ripping themselves apart from the evil. She throws herself into it so mightily that it reminded me a lot, and the images too when Jong-gu is having his nightmares, of the night terrors I used to have. Uh, night terrors are awful. Uh, I have woken myself up screaming more times than I would like for anyone to ever have in their entire life. The, the dream especially where Jong-gu is accosted by one of the zombie, devil, whatevers we're going to call them. I'll just call them the demon villagers. But that scene where the demon villager emerges from the wilderness and Jong-gu is investigating this dilapidated building where he thinks that he has a lead only for the demon villager to emerge from the wilderness that has grown into the building. That's another scene that hit home for me in remembering what those night terrors are like, but also kind of underlining, I guess, my fruitless search for meaning here. From the images there, we seem to have on the surface the stability of a domestic anything, any kind of infrastructure, but it's so clearly rotting, and the wilderness is already 
inside the house. One of my favorite old school horror tropes, the call is coming inside the house, only in this case, it is the demon villager has already infected and come through inside the house. Kwok Do-wan, uh, who plays jong and Kim Hwan-hee, they both kind of hurt me at times with their performances and how well they captured that terror snapping out of it and realizing that, yes, you are alive and you're screaming and you need to find some way to calm down. Thinking about you, a comment that you had mentioned earlier about how the daughter had just caused to scream at her father the way she does. And there's a moment leading up to that scene, which I guess is a callback to one of the stories earlier on where, I don't know, you, I got the sense that the daughter may or may not have been violated, depending on which side of the fence you go with this film, because the way how the father was looking at her spreading infection, the, the welts that she was starting to get, and the looking up under the dress, and then the questioning of, is this your shoe, is this your shoe, it harkens back to, I guess, an earlier a story that happens earlier in the film, where one of the rumors is that the Japanese stranger had raped a woman and gave her this infection that caused things, and it's, what, it's one of those things where you, you could tell that the father is pondering whether or not his daughter has been violated by this man and i i kept thinking that that also fueled his rage and his i guess misjudgment early on because there's no again there's no evidence for a lot of this it's just based on hearsay but you know when things start to fester in one's mind it always turns out far worse than what reality is and i i thought that was an interesting aspect that they touched on but they didn't really go to the point in terms of exploiting but it was just another interesting layer to this film yeah and it is another solid mystery in a film that's certainly not short of them for a film where we're looking at the women just in terms of how they're portrayed for the most part they're all either victims or innocent bystanders who end up being victims but then you have by contrast the mysterious woman who's almost like the quasi protector of the village even though she still seems to know what's going on but still lets people make their own decisions regardless of good or bad but yet she was a really interesting character and a source of strength especially with the scene with the shaman where he's throwing up and then later on or earlier before that with the japanese man where there's this kind of dueling seance going on and the japanese man has this violent near-death reaction and then you see her kind of calmly walk by and it's, there's almost like a fear in his eyes like they're all afraid of her but then at the same times she is all powerful but yet she reserved and lets people do things i thought that was a really interesting choice since you broached the i, I guess the exorcism for lack of a better term i was amazed that the last half huge chunks of it go without dialogue. It's a lot of realization and action and consequence. You have the group murder of the Japanese stranger that follows the attempted exorcism with that physically rough to watch moment of him pounding the gigantic nails into this stone like it was almost co-opting christianity in a way with like the the piercing image and what impressed me about those moments is how often director uh, na hong jin allowed his camera to be steady and still we saw that with memories of murder last week in individual shots but in the wailing so much to 
tension in this movie is generated by Na Hongjin sitting the camera down on a piece of scenery and letting something barely perceptible move or change before we finally get something that kicks into action. Even when that action happens, it's rarely at a quick pace. Like, even when the dog rushes to attack Jong-gu when he's in the Japanese stranger's home, the attack happens off-screen with a shot against static through the door without being able to see anything that's going on. So all we hear is the dog's whimpering and the sound of the thuds. That is another moment where I'll agree with you that, I don't know, maybe Jung-Goo could have just, like, brought a steak or something, something to appease this violent dog. He's just going there looking for an excuse to kill something, and it happened to be the dog in this case when he couldn't get any of the evidence. But yeah, I was impressed with how patient Na Hong-jin was with his camera, and it's not easy to sustain this level of tension for two and a half hours. This movie was grueling to watch, but when I consider how patient it is on top of that, it just gets doubly more impressive. The one thing I would, I guess if I was to say one complaint would be the length, but then thinking back, I was like, well, what would I cut from this film? And I, I couldn't really think of a moment, because there are moments of silence that, as you said, are effective because of the action. There's wonderful shots of scenery and the way how the camera captured the night, the rain, like it's, there's nothing I would take out of it. And the fact that I've, I've seen this film twice now, and even getting ready for this show, I was thinking about too, and I was like, oh, I, I gotta watch it again, because there's, there's so much that my brain is still sorting through. I hope that the listeners out there will chime in on this film and let us know your theories. The more that I talk about it, my, my brain starts to, to shift on, on certain things. It's like, oh, I, I need to go and rewatch this again. And for a person who's not a, a big horror guy, that this is one of those films that I can see myself adding to the collection and watching it over and over. Yeah, for my part, I'm uh, way more interested in getting feedback from the listeners because I will be good and screwed if I watch this again anytime soon. It was fantastic, but I was actually discussing this with our cover artist, Seth, who does the art for most of our episodes, and I told him this is the movie we're watching. It's on Netflix. Fair warning, it's an intense horror film that has terrifying answers about faith. Ultimately, yes, there is something beyond, but whether it is hospitable to us or not, completely up in the air. So maybe, listeners, if you caught something benign or helpful (laughs) in this, maybe I will give it another shot and just look in the corners for the bit of hope. But all the encroaching wilderness, all the demon villagers, all the blood, and the violence in the placidity, I think I'm good with the whaling. (laughs) Definitely good with the whaling for now. There are some moments of humor, at least the first 20 minutes. The first 20 minutes are a little light, so you you could at least start off with that, ease yourself into it, and then let the horror take over. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm going to have a hard time even getting my body prepped for humor when I know that bloody demon guy is going to be showing up through the bushes a few minutes later. So uh, I appreciate the pick, as well as the encouragement for a second watch, but I'm going to give that a hard pass for now. <laughs> so I think that's a good enough place to wrap up for the day. Courtney, how can folks reach you? 
They can reach me on Twitter at the Changing Reels account, which is at Changing Reels AC, or you can reach me personally on Twitter at SmallMind. And I monitor our Gmail account, which is changing.reels.ac at gmail.com. You can catch me on Twitter at can't stop drew and what i said earlier very serious listeners if you've watched the whaling or you have theories on the whaling or your own interpretations i would love to hear those we may even read them if they're really interesting on a podcast in the future because this is a film very open to horrifying conclusions and i'd like to see what your mind brought up because mine certainly didn't go to a good place Courtney, I, that'll do it for me. Any any notes you want to leave us on? No, I think let's just let the whaling settle in, and hopefully listeners will uh, check it out, for those who haven't, and those who have seen it, watch it again, and let us know your thoughts. Alternately, spare yourself the pain, just shoot us the thoughts. In the <laughs> end, we want to hear from you. So, for Changing Reels, I'm Andrew Hathaway. And I'm Courtney Small. And we'll see you next time. This has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.